Welcome to International Marxist Radio, the official podcast of the International Marxist Tendency, Marxist.com. Join us every single week for Marxist news, theory, and analysis. Hello and welcome to International Marxist Radio. This week we are talking about the oppression of women as a historical phenomenon, where it came from, how it coincides with the development of the family, private property, and the state, to take a phrase from Engels and his famous text. Uh, And we're very excited that this episode coincides with the release of a brand new issue of the In Defense of Marxism theoretical magazine, issue 41, which is broadly themed around the topic of anthropology, the oppression of women, uh, the development of class society, and so on. And we're very fortunate to have the author of the lead article from that issue, which I will put a link to purchase in the description of this episode, Fred Weston, who you will recognize if you've been listening to the podcast for the last few weeks. He's an editor for Marxist.com. Fred, thank you so much for joining us again. So when we had you on the podcast previously, you were talking about how the Russian Revolution advanced the fight for women's emancipation. But in this article for the IDOM, you're taking a broader view. You're looking at where the oppression of women came from, why it exists, and whether it can be done away with. But I think in the eyes and in the minds of many people, the oppression of women by men, it's just something which is innate to human relations. Men will always oppress women. Women will always be subordinated. But is this the case? Has the patriarchal family, if you like, uh, with man at the head of the household, And has the oppression of women by men always been a feature of human society? I wanted to go a bit further back and look at where Engels got his ideas from. Um, And mainly, not solely, but mainly he based himself on the book Ancient Society by the American anthropologist Morgan, Lewis Henry Morgan, um, who um, looked at uh, well, he looked at the Iroquois and then he looked at other uh, peoples of uh, North America. He looked at their family structure, their kin relationships, and he gathered information from other parts of the world, trying to work out if there was a historical development. Uh, where where did this kinship system come from? Because mm. it was different to what we used to say in Europe. Um, and what he... Uh, discovered uh, was that there were different forms of the family let's put it this way um, in the course of the development of human society Um, and um, basically uh, showing that there were periods and there were types of societies which had forms of the family let's call it like that where there was an egalitarian relationship between men and women. Um, And if you look at um, hunter-gatherer societies where there is no private property, there's no landed property, there's no animals, there's no um, herds or anything, you have hunting for the animals and gathering, uh, foraging for um, vegetable sources, fruits, nuts, roots, etc. you had both hunting and gathering with uh, an equal contribution uh, to, let's say, the diet, the calorie intake of, uh, of families. Um, the, uh, th- and this was expressed in an equality between men and women. They both equally um, contributed. Um, and you also see a veneration of women in, age, in, the, in, in the early days. Uh, you see it in the religions, where the religion changes over time, which was also a reflection of this. You go back f- far back enough in Greek mythology, you'll find women in a different position. You find goddesses, heroines, um, 
You even have God himself having a wife in earlier times. Um, there's plenty of evidence, uh, even archaeological evidence, which shows that in the ancient, uh, the ancient Hebrews, very, very far back, um, they had, God, God had a wife. Mm. Uh, she was called Ashura or the queen of the heavens. Um, and they were on an equal basis. If you go back to the Bible, God, actually God, when he creates, you know, the story of the Bible, obviously, when God creates humans, he doesn't say we are going to create them in my image. Mm. He says we're going to create them in our image. Mm. Who's he referring to? Because he does create men and women, mm. and if it's ours, it's because there, 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 there was it was normal. Because the 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 gods are a creation of human beings, not the other way around. And the type of gods you have will reflect the type of society you live in. Yeah, the god of triangles would have three sides, famously. Yeah. So th therefore, if you know, if if women have an equal position to men in a society, they're going to be equal in the heavens as well. We can't give a full evaluation of Engel's arguments. Uh, people sh listening should just read Origin of the Family, Private Property in the States. But can we very quickly explain the process whereby the development of class society, the emergence of a surplus changes the relationship between men and women? Because as you say, if, if, if you're a hunter-gatherer society and everybody's doing their bit to contribute to the diet of the, the group, then there is no basis for women to be oppressed. And of course, women, women bear children, so it makes a certain sense to, to, to protect them when they're pregnant and, and this sort of thing. Um, but how does the emergence of class society start to change that relationship between men and women? Well, just to go back to that point before I move on to this, um, they've, they've, they've done studies of sub-Saharan hunter-gatherers even today. Mm. They've compared, for instance, gender inequality between farmers and hunter-gatherers. Mm. And there's a greater inequality of the genders in farming societies than there is in hunter-gatherer societies. Mm. They've even found it in the molecular genetic evidence, going, you know, the DNA tracing and that, which shows that, that tendency. How? By, by tracing, for instance, the tendency to matter locality, i.e. women tended to remain with their female relatives, right. i.e. their mothers, their sisters, even the grandmother um, played a role in this. Um, that that seems to be confirmed even by studies today. Um, but there's even studies which show it wasn't some in some cases it wasn't even an equality of contribution to the diet. Um, more calories were provided by the gathering than the hunting. For I guess example. that makes more sense. You've got a stable supply of food from gathering, whereas with hunting, you could go out for a day and fail to kill anything, and you come uh, back yes, empty-handed. You could do. You could do. So the women played a very, very important role. And that explain. And also, re remember, they were seen as the givers of life, right. the producers of life. It's not by chance, for instance, that the symbol of um, God's wife, Ashura, mm. was a tree. Yeah. A tree which gives fruit. Women create the next generation. Um, so they, they were highly respected and they were on an equal basis in um in that society but going back to your question you see human beings uh are, they're an, an intelligent animal relatively speaking well yeah yeah <laughs> I, I think rather more intelligent than most um they are able to the difference between humans and other animals is they don't simply repeat constantly the same structures the same methods mm. they learn right they learn um, one generation learns and is able to pass on its knowledge to the next mm -hmm. through a gradual, very slow accumulation of knowledge. Obviously, in the early period, humans began to develop techniques, um, tools, the very rudimentary ones. And with each new tool that was invented, um, you could say, in a sense, the productivity of human labor increased. The ability to procure food um uh, increased and at a certain point it's inevitable that humans would begin to experiment with not just gathering what's out there but planting it yes i would imagine the women would have been 
those that would have initiated that process. It's, a, it's an irony if you think about it. They would have initiated a process, i.e. Uh, through some accidental event or whatever, you realize that the seed is planted and grows and you can replant. Therefore, instead of having to trek miles every day looking for your food, you can have it locally by your huts, by your little village or whatever. I suppose at a certain point, animal husbandry starts to develop as well. That's right. Instead, The idea of, you know, instead of walking miles to get your plants or going on long hunting trips, you can domesticate the animal. You can have it fenced in near, near you as, as a, a, a herd of, of, of goats or sheep or cattle. Um, this is a huge change in the history of humanity, it's in effect a revolution. You could call it the agricultural revolution if you, if you the want. The Neolithic revolution sometimes yeah. is the term you That's right, because it happened in that period. Um, and this provides a ready um, supply of food mm. uh, for humans, um, but it also changes the way of life. For example, the nomadic tendency of hunter-gatherers to move according to seasons and the movement even of the, the, the prey, the animals they, they live off, etc., um, to a more sedentary uh, um, uh, kind of life, a small village, a group of huts, land that's cultivated, animals that are um, uh, kept close, close to, the, um, to, the, to the human group. Um, but this is the beginning of a process which, is, which will eventually change the relationship between men and women. Mm. Because earlier, you know, early human society was egalitarian. Hunter-gatherer societies are invariably egalitarian, even the ones we observe today, the surviving ones. Are they sexually egalitarian? Is there monogamy in these societies? Do people, do all the men know who their children are? Or is it a bit more freeform? Well... I would think today, I think people do know who their children are, even in hunter-gatherers. And um, but if 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 we go back in time, we can imagine a period where human knowledge was so limited mm. that there wasn't a clear understanding of what produced that baby that is born uh, from women. Um, there, there, they have there have been, um, for instance, there's an example I can quote of one. Um, group in the, in the Amazon uh, who believe that um, a woman has, the, 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 the baby is ready to grow, mm. but it needs to be fed, it needs to be nurtured, um, and it requires several men to father that child. This is, this is a particular example uh, where they think the more men, the, the greater the chances of that child growing and developing. And therefore, they in that particular group, they were the, the children would have several fathers, for right. example. So, so, so the woman would mate with several men, and yes. then, of course, all those men have a vested interest in protecting that woman and her offspring because, in their minds, it's they all contributed. That's right. So, yeah. it's that all that if, if one of them dies, they still have other men that can look that's after right. the children. That's right. But that that that's obviously reflecting a very early stage of development of humans gradually over time. The concept that, you know, the father fathers a child yes. would would emerge, and that is an important element, particularly in the development of society as it moves towards agriculture and greater wealth. So you have agriculture, you have greater wealth, you have a surplus, you have more food than you need to just feed yourself, so you can settle down, you can develop a stable community you can develop the basis for civilization really how does that coincide with the emergence of women's oppression well you see in early societies there was no rigid marriage in the sense of you know the catholic marriage you're married and you can never ever get divorced and you must stay together till till death us do part as, as they say um there was a greater freedom of uh, in the you know you'd have a pairing couple within that, but it wasn't um, there. There wasn't a strict um, regulation of you must stay with this man. The relationship could break down. The woman could have a relationship with somebody else. Um, there was no sure way of saying this child is definitely 
the uh, the offspring of this man um but uh as wealth emerged and the wealth emerged as a as a result of agriculture um producing um uh, domesticating animals animals have this characteristic that you can breed them and you can increase your herd your flock um and you can increase your wealth therefore mm. i mean animals would be a source of milk of meat um, and also later on a source of labor in the sense that you could tie the plow behind um, say two cows uh, oxen or whatever or two horses and plow the land which massively increases the productivity of the land but that's very heavy work i actually as a young boy watched my uncles plowing in the traditional way still in the early 60s and i can remember watching what a tough job it was because you've got to make sure that plow sticks into the ground in a straight line and uh, goes deeply enough and doesn't just uh, come out um because that's what happened if you let go the cows will just obviously pull it out it's a very tough um uh tough work and there was a tendency therefore for the the um the men to start to play a more dominant role in in the in the division of labor let's their, put it that way their physical strength becomes an advantage basically it, be- it becomes it becomes an element an element women did play a role in agriculture because like, women also dug um my mother as a young woman would spend every year in the, the digging season digging by hand so the women did but there was definitely um a division uh between the men and the women which meant that the men began to accumulate the property you got also consider for example if you've plowed a field if you plowed an area of la- of land you want to make sure that what comes out of that is yours you worked for it you want to feed off it you've got to protect it there's going to be conflicts over territories conflicts over resources and therefore it's not just a question of um, the labor itself but the protecting of that of the product of that labor which means fighting as well mm. um you'll see a a, a ser- series of elements which produce a situation where the men the the differentiation um, is much greater um between men and women agriculture also had another effect it created much greater quantity of food and it produced uh, a population explosion a massive increase in um the numbers um there's there's studies show that actually farmer women tend to have more babies over their lifetime than hunter gatherer women mm. imagine a hunter gatherer woman uh, in, in in a nomadic condition has a baby has to carry that baby uh, for a period um strapped on the back or whatever um that uh, to have two or three in quick succession mm. is is a physical problem on a on a farm that's no longer nomadic the life you have uh the greater surplus the greater food therefore the greater uh, possibility of feeding more mouths and you can have more children in succession and there's also a material incentive to have them because the more children for a say a peasant family the more farmers the more farmers the more labor to work the land even 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 within our own living memory if you think back I mean my personally my mother was one of eight I wouldn't dream of having eight kids um but in those days it was quite common these sizable families especially in the in in a peasant environment um therefore the women would also be much more um how do you say isolated to the uh, to the work around the house right so the the shackling to domestic drudgery starts to yes. emerge yes where you're spending more and more of your time looking after the children keeping the the dwelling clean uh cooking the meals if you like preparing the food this yeah. sort of thing there's also a division in for instance the working of the of the of the agricultural products because women did play a role in agriculture mm. but there was a greater tendency obviously to to be more confined to the home but with this comes something else you see as wealth increases um the the desire to transmit that wealth to your offspring um becomes an important element in 
the transformation of the position of women mm. because uh, the man wants to be absolutely sure that the babies, that the offspring that this woman produces are his. That explains why there's this dramatic change. Women, is, uh, women are secluded to the house. If you look at the ancient Greeks, for example, terrible oppression of women. Yes. Women were not allowed to be seen in public. Women, if, if, uh, if there was a male visitor to the house, the woman had to be in, uh, uh, secluded in other rooms at the back of the house, not to be seen, not to be in contact. That gives you the idea that the men wanted to make sure that there was no opportunity whatsoever for their women, for their wives, to have a chance to have maybe a momentary relationship with another man, thereby creating the risk that she could be pregnant with somebody else's offspring, not yours. Mm. And that explains the, 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 the terrible treatment of women, for instance, in the ancient Greeks. Once the Greeks transitioned from the previous uh, matrilineal um, system to a patriarchal system, mm. there was a huge um, fall of woman in the sense of her position changed radically. Yes. Engels, I think, describes it as the world's first great counter-revolution, the relegation of women to the yes. subordinate position. And I think the term you used earlier was really apposite. You talked about the ancient Greeks protecting their women, because this is the point. Women become regarded as property. That's right. As valuable assets that belong to someone and can be exploited That's right. for what they can provide, i.e. children and the capacity for inheritance. Woman was the property, first of her father and then of her husband. Mm. Um, and she would literally be sold. You know, the dowry uh, that goes with it, um, the, um, the exchange of goods uh, uh, in, in, a, in a marriage. Yes. Um, and the, the woman was like a property. I was reading one book on the um, the history of prostitution, actually, which sh uh, showed that uh, what happened to a man that, say, raped a woman, mm. he would either have to marry that woman or, in some cases, pay compensation. For damaged goods. Yes, that literally was the, the way it was treated. You damaged my goods. You damaged my property. That's how far the position of woman fell with the rise of property and class society. And we think that we're so far removed from those attitudes, but even in modern, enlightened, uh, liberal, democratic Britain, I got married the, the other year, and my father-in-law gave my wife away. That's still how it's described. That's, and that, a, that's a hangover from the past. Precisely. You know, this, this, the father who brings the bride into and hands her over to the husband. Maybe. Something else you alluded to the impetus for men to fight in order to defend their property. Engels talks about the fall of woman, the rise of private property, and the emergence of state power. And he says that these things all go together. The development of the armed bodies of men whose job is to defend existing property relations. The cover image we've used for this issue of the IDOM it's um, a sculpture of the abduction of the Sabines um, by the Romans when they were a very early underdeveloped tribe. And basically, they ran out of women. Hmm. That essential asset to sustain their civilization, they ran out of. And so they essentially went to a tribe next door and stole all of their women. And they were using force to do it. They were using armed bodies of men to do it. The embryonic state power. Well, yes. You see, you see, once you have a surplus, which is a product of uh, thousands of years of slow accumulation of knowledge and technique, which at a certain point produces a leap mm. in, um, in, 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 in the structure of society, mm. um, and you have this wealth... Um, you see, once you have wealth, uh, once you have a situation where the, the, the work, the labor of a human being is not like in a hunter-gatherer society where basically the, the collective work of all the men and women 
produce what is necessary for everybody, mm. but there's no surplus. There's no accumulation. Yeah. In an agricultural society, once, in, and in the early days, we've got to get this right, in the early days of agriculture, there wasn't an immediate passage to class society. There wasn't an immediate uh, private property. Property in the early days was still socially owned. It was collective. There was a, There was property, but for instance, it would belong to a whole tribe or to a clan within a tribe and they'd have a specific territory um but the land wasn't the property of an individual mm. it was still collective but as the pro as the surplus grew with the growth let's put it this to, to use a word with the growth of the productivity of human labor once you have a surplus you have the material basis for a division of society between those who work and produce and others that don't mm. Now, the owners will be those, obviously, that don't work mm. or work less, and they can get others to work for them. Slavery, for example, becomes a material possibility. In very early hunter-gatherer societies, unless you have a peculiar situation such as the, um, the northwest Pacific coast of, 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 of North America, where you had a particular situation with a huge abundance of fish, for example, but in general, um, in hunter-gatherer societies, uh, you don't see it. But as the wealth accumulates in the transition from hunter-gathering to agriculture, um, you have the possibility, for instance, if you have a war with another uh, tribe, instead of killing them or eating them or whatever, or adopting them into your tribe, which sometimes happened, um, on an equal basis, you can enslave them, i.e. you can use them to work uh, your land or do other work that's necessary. And uh, b because the labor of an individual is sufficient, say, to feed two, three, or four people. Um, once that emerges, however, you have a situation where how do you make other people work for you? It's not going to be on a voluntary basis. No, you threaten them. You threaten you them with force. You've got, you've got to have a force. You've got to have a physical force. And that's where... And the state begins to emerge as an armed force, basically, an armed force to to make sure that the oppressed layer keep stays in its place. Mm. Yes. So you've made a few allusions to the peoples that Morgan studied, for example. You also mentioned this tribe in the Amazon, and something which is very useful in your article is you offer concrete examples of how extant societies, peoples who still live today, can give us some clues about what the relations between human beings was like before the development of class society, because there are still hunter-gatherer societies today that have faced varying degrees of penetration by modernity. So what kind of clues can we get from the peoples who live today about the early history of humanity yeah. well you see um i don't think we can have an approach to say oh here we have a hunter-gatherer society in say africa sub-saharan africa somewhere we have found the earliest stages because they hold they also have evolved right and there's variation too I mean, you, you, you give an example of tribes in alaska who because of the particular conditions of that environment um, don't have egalitarianism between men and women. Yes, for example, because there's not much hunter gathering, and there's not much gathering that you can do, say, in northern, in the north of Alaska, or um, in very cold climates. The diet is mainly based on animal fat and protein. You're hunting big game. Yeah, hunting big game. There's very few plants, so the conditions also change change the gender uh, relations, mm. even even where you have hunters. Um, but in general, most people don't live in, in, the, in those cold climates. They, where, where people live in sort of more uh, temperate, temperate climates, climates um, you have a, a, this egalitarianism of hunt, hunter-gatherers. But um, if we look at uh, what survived, and we, we must always remember that it's, it's very rare these days to actually find any society which is living... Um, like we lived, say, 100 or 200,000 years ago, mm. they've all come under the influence of contact mm. with more more sort of developed 
industrialized, urbanized uh, Western societies, which have impacted on these people. Mm. But nonetheless, um, all the anthropologists I've read and of varying political tendencies, you know, not, not all of them are, uh, are left wing, all agree on one thing. Um, the extreme egalitarianism of hunter-gatherer societies, even those that um, exist today, which is, in, I think, is enough to be able to say that it, it clearly is a tendency amongst hunter-gatherers to be like that. And, because, and there's a material reason, like, as, as we discussed um, before. There's another element, of course, is the, the nature, you know, human nature. They talk about human nature. What is human nature? Human nature changes as society changes. But if we look at early humans, it was a material necessity to work together, to collaborate. You can't go hunting successfully, for example, if at the end of the hunt, one of, say, ten men takes most of the uh, of the meat of right. the animal that's caught. The other nine guys are going to say, well, next time you can go hunt yourself, you know. Um, they have to hunt together. They have to collaborate. They have to actually decide, you know, what positions to adopt, where 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 to move, etc. When when to go for the animal, where to push it, etc. Uh, etc. Et and because it's a cooperative effort, and I actually saw a documentary of, a, of an, an African hunter gatherer um, group um, a few years back. I found it very interesting because what it showed was at the end of the hunt when they came back. One of the men in the tribe actually divided the meat into equal quantities for each hut. It struck me. I thought, there it is. It's, li it's a living example of the egalitarian nature of, of hunter-gatherer societies. So it's, it's clearly evident. Um, now, that doesn't mean that, obviously, you can't find peculiar uh, forms depending on the climate or the geography of a of a, of a particular case where it wouldn't fit that necessarily but the bulk of hunter-gatherers um, are like that mm. yes and some of the particular examples you give in the article um, you cite the I'll try and get this right that Kung and the Hadza who are sub-Saharan hunter-gatherer tribes where the women tend to remain with their mothers yeah which contrasts with agricultural tribes where patrilocality is more yeah. common. So there are modern examples that demonstrate this strong link between hunter-gatherer societies and matrilocality, where the women all stay together. And in terms of matrilineal societies, you talk about the, the Mosso people in the Sichuan provinces who are an ancient tribal people who are matrilineal. Actually, uh, they seem to have a, a rather unique and quite interesting um, set of conventions around their sexual relations and their social relations. Could you quickly explain? Yes, there are a few, not, not many, but a few surviving um, societies where, to this day, they are matrilineal in the sense that the descent and inheritance is through the female line. Hmm. And they are in... In the Americas, they, they are to be found in Africa, they're to be found in Asia. They're, you know, very distant from each other. Um, and th this particular case in, in, in China um, is um, a case where the, the children are born to a group, to a family, which is structured around the women. Mm. They, they, and the men visit, they call it uh, the walking marriages, where the men visit the women. There are obviously relationships, but... It's all centered around the women's group. Mm. And it, it describes the, um, the role of the uncle, either maternal uncle, the brother of the mother, whose duty is to the children born in this group. Mm. When I read that, I thought that's very similar to what uh, Morgan describes in the societies he observed. So these are survivors, let's say, of a previous form. And the question I would pose is, did these people simply invent this system or decide one day to choose to have that? Or are they actually remnants of a previous system? Now, all of these are clearly under pressure to adapt. For mm. instance, anybody that migrates from those areas in China will, will migrate to a city where they have to adapt to um, modern-day 
family um, relations and, and the pressures are there. They're, they're constant. What I found interesting, this is just a little anecdotal thing, which is not in the article. When, the, um, the, uh, when Mao came to power in 1949, um, these people were considered to be living in a very you know, wrong way. And in one case, in one village, they, they sent officials and they uh, set up a cinema to educate the peoples in the correct way of having a family, mm. um, uh, as, if, as if their system was immoral, you know. Um, well, the villagers burnt the cinema down uh, <laughs> as a reaction, saying, basically, who are you to tell us how to live our lives? I found that quite interesting. What it showed is that the others didn't understand what they were um, what they were seeing. Marco Polo, apparently, traveled through China and he met these people. And he, his report was, oh, the men just give you their wives. Right. What he didn't understand, that was clearly a Marco Polo from Italy uh, in a very patriarchal society that sees women as the property of men. And therefore, if a woman freely uh, has sex with you, she's being allowed to by the men who own them. He didn't understand that there could be a society which where the women were actually free to um, decide who they relate with. Mm. Um, it's an interesting example of how two very different societies meet and they don't understand each other. I would imagine that both sides would think the others to be immoral. Right, but of course, whichever society is on a higher productive level will tend to impose on the society which is less developed. And yeah, those technique are, yeah, will have a role. Exactly, and, and those kinds of older relations will start to be undermined. And you give some examples in the article about tribal peoples who come into contact with capitalism and one or the other men or women start working, working in a modern capitalist sense, and you start to see less equality, yes. more gender repression emerging as a consequence of that contamination by capitalism, yes. if you will. Yes, yes. I mean, contact with Europeans, uh, was, it was tragic, actually. What they did, what they did to people was, was barbaric. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to go into the details of that. We had an article in the previous uh, edition by uh, comrades on the, the, you know, the, the conquest of the Americas and how that was done. Yes, we had uh, Jorge, who yeah. helped write the article, speak on the podcast about it as well. Yeah, but um, contact with, uh, basically, contact with capitalism at the end of the day, that's what it was. In, in North America, for example, radically changed the lives of these people. First of all, they destroyed uh, huge numbers of them uh, through wars, but also through the spread of disease. Um, but for example, the, the horse, mm. there was no horse in North America. Um, but the, uh, once the horse was adopted by the indigenous peoples, their way of life changed. Mm. Um, they used it very skillfully, actually. Yeah, the Comanche, of course, uh, yeah. regarded as some of the best horsemen in the world. Yes, and they didn't have it before. They adopted something which came from outside, and it changed the way they lived. Right. Um, but f worse, worse than that, of course, is once... Once American capitalist society starts to advance westwards, they need to take the land off these people. Right. And they push them into reserves. They, 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 a huge historical crime was committed there. Mm. But even then, the people that we meet are very different from um, what they used to be. Yes. I'll, I'll get, I can give you another example. It's not in the article, unfortunately. You know, Lewis Morgan, was at, Henry Morgan, was actually adopted by the Iroquois, they went through a ceremony and they gave him a name, uh, a tribal name, etc. Because he was a lawyer and they and he was he was sympathetic to them. He was trying to help them with their land claims. But it's interesting that he was adopted in a in a ceremony which had very little to do with what it would have been like two or three hundred years earlier. Um, and you already see that they've changed. It's a bit, of a, a bit of a sanitized tourist version of the uh, the old-fashioned ceremony. Yes, yes. I mean, the old way of ceremonies. You know, it, it, what happened if in, in a war you lost a son, mm. you could adopt a member of the defeated tribe. Right. But, to replace him, but the ceremony was a brutal one and it could either end up in your death or your adoption. Now, Morgan didn't have risk of that at all. He was nicely um, integrated. 
um, at the time. It was a very different uh, people, unfortunately, uh, that that he met. But anyway, I'm I'm digressing. No, no, this is all very interesting. I I think it's also worth pointing out that we don't have a kind of sanitized or condescendingly positive attitude about these hunter-gatherer societies, pre-class society. We regard the development of class society as historically progressive because it laid the basis for the development of human civilization. I mean, Engels talks about the contradiction of humanity being freed through slavery. Yes. Because it was the development of slavery that allowed for the development of civilization. Well, on that, I could actually go, you know, the the diet that emerged from agriculture Mm. was actually worse. Yes. Than the diet of hunter-gatherers. Um, they're actually healthier, uh, right. physically healthier uh, than, than a lot of the farmers. And socially, I think we could say the relations between men and women are ultimately healthier. I mean, we talk about communism, a classless, stateless society, but in a modern form, using all the advantages of yes. technology and medicine and technique and culture developed in the past several thousand years – would return men and women to something like the social relations of pre-class society, but on a higher level. Yes. So what what it means is it's the elimination of private property. Right. You see, property didn't always exist. Now, I've seen attempts. I I, I just read a book by Franz Boas, Anthropology and Modern Life, in which he he tries to show that uh, property always existed because they owned their tools and weapons. Right, okay. Uh, that's a rather strange concept of property. Uh, when we're talking about property, we're talking about land, animals, farming, machinery, etc., um, on a much higher level, an accumulation of property. You don't accumulate no. lots and lots of tools and weapons. You have the ones you use for your daily purposes. Mm. Um, but um, the question of property, I think the biggest contribution that Morgan made, and I just wanted to say, we're not idolizing uh, Morgan. He's not the Bible of anthropology. He's, he's a man of his times. But I've read, you know, reading him and reading about him, he did, given the limits of the period, attempt a genuine scientific approach to understanding how society evolved over, um, over periods. But, and he got, he got things wrong, um, but he also got a lot of things right. And it was that materialist method that drew Engels to his work. That's right. It was... This idea that society and the family within society evolves, changes over time in line with the development of technique, i.e. basically in line with the development of the productive forces, if you want to. Historical materialism, essentially. That that was it. Although, you know, Morgan was not a communist. Morgan was a a Republican, a bourgeois, well-to-do, an investor. He had uh, invested in the railways, in mining. Um, he lived well. Mm. He was a he was um, a genuine democrat. I would say, in a sense, a bourgeois democrat. For instance, his idea of the family was that the mon- monogamous family, the highest form, needed further perfection. In what sense? I.e., once we've achieved genuine total equality between men and women within the monogamous family, that was his idea. And U.S. society, he viewed as the the peak, the pinnacle of human development. He mm. compared American with its republic to the monarchies of Europe, these are with an aristocracy and feudal leftovers. He had this view. He also viewed the indigenous peoples as people who, in order to survive, had to adapt, basically, to capitalism. They had to become farmers. They had to adopt uh, private property, which they struggled with. Uh, That was one of the problems they had. You know, imposing this idea of private property on the indigenous peoples of North America. It was so alien, I suppose. Yeah, it it was an alien idea. I mean, eventually, obviously, they they adapted over time. But uh, Morgan was trying, in a sense, to save them from total annihilation under capitalism. Um, That's who Morgan was. But his studies, um, his research did open up. I think it was... A step forward. Yes. I would say, if you compare him to Darwin, did Darwin get everything right? No, I don't think so. Did he understand all of the the mechanisms of uh, evolution? Of course he did not. Well, he didn't understand genetics for a start. He didn't have genetics. No such thing at the time. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, the combination of genetics with Darwin's ideas obviously gave us a big... But Darwin played an important role. Yes. I think Morgan played an equally important role, 
with all the limitations, but in, a, in our understanding. And the key one, I think, is the role of property, the rise of property. He actually says it in, in, the, formation, in the formation of the state. Mm -hmm. He doesn't develop it to the degree of Engels, but he does, he does raise that idea. And the position of women changed yes. dramatically. And I think it's very interesting, especially given that Morgan was no socialist, that the taint of his association with Engels, the fact that Engels saw the materialist content of his ideas means that his ideas for a long time were shunned and deliberately opposed by other anthropologists. I have an interesting quote here by a guy called Bronislav Malinowski, who's a bit of a reactionary uh, SOB, to be perfectly honest, and he quite openly states the following, if once we came to the point of doing away with the individual family as the pivotal element of our society, we should be faced with a social catastrophe compared with which the political upheaval of the French Revolution and the economic changes of Bolshevism are insignificant. And this reminds me very much of the attack on materialism you see in the so-called hard sciences because of its association with Marxism. Yes. Explicitly for that reason. And this guy's openly saying the materialist, the historical materialist trend in anthropology, which Morgan represented, is a danger to yes. the institutions of bourgeois society and he makes the direct connection between that and the french revolution and the russian revolution so it's very clear to me reading your article and reading around your article that it was engel's endorsement of morgan that proved the kiss of death for his ideas in polite bourgeois academia well th this question of materialism mm. um i'll digress just briefly um i've read reports on FBI files on anthropologists. Mm. Uh, for example, Franz Boas had a lengthy um, FBI file. One of his students, Margaret Mead, had something like a 500-page FBI file. We found uh, before we had this interview that um, Boas was on the Dewey Commission. Yes, he was a member of the Dewey Commission that looked into Trotsky's um, so-called crimes. But now, now I'm digressing. Sorry, yeah. carry on. <laughs> but um, no, the, the, what I found in, 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 in several of these reports on the FBI files is that atheism and materialism were considered by the FBI as dangerous ideas. Materialism. Mm. Um, so if we go back to Morgan on this question, you see Morgan was not a materialist in every aspect of his um, thinking. You know, he was um, he came from a Calvinist background for example. Um he um, he never openly stated that he was an atheist. Mm. Uh, never said that. Although I get the suspicion from some of the stuff I read that he became a bit less religious over life. But I don't. He, he never abandoned that idea. Um, he he was he was a bourgeois. But you see, what he showed was that the position of women changed because of private property. The state emerged as a result of private property. Now, he didn't see the state as a bad thing. He was a bourgeois, after all. But what he showed was that it evolved over time mm. in line with the, the development of technique. And there were stages in human development. At one point, he actually says, however, these are the, some of the things which I think would be upsetting to some of the bourgeois, is that... He says the monogamian, he calls it, the monogamous family, was the highest, for, you know, reached so far in, in his time. Um, and he said, I, I'm quoting from memory now, he said, so far it has served us well. Mm. But if society continues to evolve and develop, um, and it no longer serves us well, it could change. So he's open to the possibility of further change in the family. That's one thing. But you see, what this means is it opens up the idea that the society that creates this family is also a mere stage in the mm. development of humanity. And it opens up the idea that, well, capitalism maybe is only a stage. Now, he considered, uh, you know, America, capitalist America, the highest form of, um, uh, of society. But you see, what happens is when Morgan's ideas are then taken by Engels, and developed further. Now, you say there wasn't an immediate re reaction against Morgan. He was actually quite 
highly um, respected. He went on a trip around Europe. He met Darwin, for example. They became uh, close friends. Darwin's uh, sons traveled to America and stayed with the Morgans. Um, he met um, other anthropologists uh, of the period. And this idea of social evolution with a materialist approach was a powerful idea in the period he was writing. But you could say towards the end of the 19th century, clearly you have a regression towards idealism, philosophical outlook, Kant and his ideas, the unknowable, etc., starts to reemerge. And there's a reaction uh, within anthropology against the ideas of social evolution. I dare say accelerated by the Russian Revolution in 1917. Yeah, it began before, mm. but definitely the Russian Revolution would have really given that process an acceleration, you see, because... The Bolsheviks did base themselves on Morgan and Engels um, in their understanding of the family, and they acted on that. Now, I mentioned it in, in the other podcast. They did carry out a number of reforms and laws and changes in, a, in, a, in an attempt to establish genuine full equality between men and women. I'm not going to go into the details of that, but um, there was, a, you see, there's another side to the anthropology and the, and the evolution. Uh, of the um, 19th century, it was used by many to justify, in effect, imperialism, colonialism, and oppression of the peoples of the, uh, of the colonies, um, combined with this idea that it was justified because there were superior races and inferior races. And they tried to justify it, in inverted commas, scientifically, you know, I have I um I I couldn't put it in the article, but I had a quote from the president of the um, American Anthropological uh, Association of 1901, who actually talks about subhumans. Yes. Right. So there was an attempt to have a kind of well, science shows that this is the case. Well, eugenics as well, of course. Yes, um, eugenics in, in the U.S. Something like a hundred thousand people were forcibly sterilized. People who were considered to have criminal genetics, people with disabilities. Yes, the the idea was that you could tell, you know, phrenology. You could tell from the shape of the head, from the look, the sh all of this, that there was a, a the criminality, for instance, was inherited yes. because it was a, a trait of that layer that inferior layer. Even within even within the so-called superior white, mm. you had the inferior degenerates as they saw them, you know which were in reality the, the poor, you know, and poverty was a consequence of genetics. All of this hor horrible uh, stuff was very present in Victorian society. Well, there was a reaction against that, a justified reaction, of course. Um, I would say somebody like Franz Boas emerges as an important figure in anthropology who questions all this and insists that we must study more carefully uh, reality, right? And there's a positive side to that. Yeah, it's a strong side to Boas, but yes. of course he has a weak side, doesn't he? Yeah, he's, he debunks all that stuff. Um, but you see, what happens is this. In rejecting um, the anthropology of the 19th century, and that side of it definitely needed rejecting, he threw out the whole idea of social evolution, mm. that you can study patterns of evolution, that you can find cause and effect. Um and he concludes um, that the changes that take place are accidental changes, right? Um, this happens, the accidental, he refers to it, the accidental discovery of a particular technique or yes. tool. The accidental encounter of peoples. You say, you talk about accident, lots of accidents. But as Marxists, we understand that accident is, is, in effect, the way necessity expresses itself. I think that's where, that's his weakness. Mm. Um, he sees all these different examples, um, sees all these accidental events, and draws the conclusion that there is no, um, there's no law of development of society, just a mass of um, events, which means we have no under way of understanding how things change and evolve. Now, that's the reactionary side, because that fits the needs of um, the bourgeois um, who want to negate the idea 
Morgan and his stages, Morgan and his changes in the family. Um, Morgan even even refers to the um, the property career of humanity, mm. uh, and he he refers to the negative aspect of property and wealth accumulation, which was open then to being used by Engels on a higher level. And what, see, once Morgan be- became the basis upon which Engels um, developed his text. Morgan, paradoxically a bourgeois, an investor, becomes tightly, tightly connected with the communists and the Marxists. It goes together. Yes. You know, you, the, once it became the basis for an explanation of the evolution of the family as the society evolved, and once it became the basis for a perspective that this is not the final family, this is not the last stage of human development, there is something greater to fight for, then it had to be combated. Thank you, Fred. You've covered a huge amount of ground. And the last thing I want to ask you jumps off a line from Engels. Engels talks about um, what society might look like under socialism, under communism. And what he actually says in Origin of the Family is... What we can conjecture at present about the regulation of sex relationships after the impending effacement of capitalist production is, in the main, of a negative character, limited mostly to what will vanish. What will be added, though, that will be settled after a new generation has grown up, a generation of men who never in all their lives have had the occasion to purchase a woman's surrender, either with money or with any other means of social power, and of women who have never been obliged to surrender to any man out of any consideration other than of real love, or to refrain from giving themselves to their beloved for fear of the economic consequences. And I think that's a very eloquent encapsulation of what we as Marxists fight for. It's the capacity for human relations to be based on genuine sentiments for men and women to be really free and not to be constrained by economic relationships for no woman to have to stay in an abusive household because moving out would be financially ruinous for no marriage to have to endure um, for the sake of avoiding shame and stigma even though two people are no longer in love we want to create the basis for free and genuine human relations so what do you think we would summarize the position of Marxists on the family as? Do we want to abolish the family? Well, we want to abolish the bourgeois family. Mm. But obviously, <laughs> humans have to reproduce, reproduce the next generation. And there is a natural uh, desire even to have children, to educate them, to bring them up. Um, the natural desire to uh, to relate to each other, men and women, and, and uh, or men and men, or women and women, we are for a greater and greater socialization of the family. Now, that does not mean, uh, you know, having all the women you want or all the men you want as if they were a kind of property anyway, mm. because we want to create a situation where no human being has to submit to the domination of another human being. Because of material need, and how do we achieve that? Well, we want total equality between men and women, um, and not just men and women. You know, gays, lesbians, trans, all all the people that don't fit into the traditional um, view of what the family should be like. How do we achieve that? Well, first of all, we have to achieve equality in law, but that's not enough. Equality means full and equal access to education, good quality education, access to jobs, well-paid jobs, not long hours. You see, class society, thousands of years of class society have developed technology to a level now where a lot of human labor can be done by machines. A lot of the drudgery, a lot of the hard physical work can be done by machines. And the actual amount of hours necessary can be mass can be radically reduced. Humans will always have to work to a degree, and it will. It's, it, but what we want to create is a situation where it's a pleasure to work. You actually want to work, not you have to work in order to live. Um, but working is a pleasure because you're socializing with other people. You're doing something useful to society. You're enriching yourself, etc. 
Um, and you need decent wages to go with that, obviously. Um, but it also involves socialization of childcare. Um, you know, everybody, oh, the family, that. Even today, people accept the fact that the state takes your children away every day for about seven or eight hours. Nobody questions it. Not only accept, I think that the majority of parents, from my experience, are delighted at of course. being able to hand over their children for a few hours every yes. day. But you see, there was a time on a farm, for instance, where there was no education, no schooling, where the children would not be um, taken away. They'd be working on the farm with the parents. We accept it. as It's an advance. It's not a backward step. This, In effect, we have socialization of education to a degree, i.e. the ch children are exposed to a standard education um, provided by the state. We want to do the same with housework, socialization of housework. Um, remove all the drudgery of, um, uh, of uh, what is considered woman's work, you know, cleaning, washing, cooking, etc., looking after the children. A lot of that can be socialized um, so that what is left is a pleasure to do, the time you spend with your children is a pleasure, not a burden. You don't come home after 10 or 12 hours work and then have to do further work and then you have to look after the children and you have limited time with them. A reduction in the working day um, would give you greater time to spend with your children, uh, greater time to spend at home, greater time to socialize and also create the material conditions where you remove conflict between men and women in marriage or partners of whatever type. Um, for instance, one of the biggest fights you can have today is when a family breaks down, divorce proceedings, and where there's limited resources, one hell of a battle involving lawyers, who make a lot of money, by the way, from this, um, over who gets the house, who gets the resources, how much alimony is to be paid, etc., etc., which creates unnecessary conflict if we had a situation where you had sufficient social housing that when a marriage breaks down there's not a big fight over who gets the house there's, there's housing for both the mother and the father both parents um, there is uh, a greater uh, involvement of society in caring for the children um, equal access to the children and a, and a continued social care for the children you'd actually have a much healthier family, a very different family, let's put it that way. And you'd have finally the material conditions whereby two people stay together because they genuinely want to stay together. Not because they're forced to because of violence or because of lack of um, funding or finance or whatever. They genuinely care for each other and we could have a situation, I mean, I'm not a, I'm, I don't have a crystal ball, we could have a situation where a couple could stay together for the rest of their lives, genuinely, or if the relationship is broken down, and it, it, they can break up in the most peaceful and amicable way possible to achieve that, you've got to change the material conditions. Capitalism has created the material conditions, the productive forces, which need to be made social. They got to be no longer private. Private property played a role. It now has reached, it's gone way by, well past its sell-by date. Mm -hmm. It needs to be removed because it, it is the cause of all the ills of today. The wars that we have, the conflicts, the racism, the homophobia, the transphobia, the oppression of women. Um, all of this is a consequence of the accumulation of property mm. and of class society. It has to be removed you remove the source of the problem and we could go back in a certain sense to the communism of the early days but it wouldn't be the same communism it would be on a very much higher level um technique has reached the point where we could live in harmony and it's not just between peoples it's in harmony with the planet itself mm. it's become an absolute necessity we have the technology, we have the knowledge now to do that. What's stopping us is private property and the owners of that private property. 
Well, thank you so much, Fred. And one more time, issue 41 of In Defense of Marxism should be out now. As of the time this podcast goes out, I'll put a link to purchase the magazine, which contains Fred's article, as well as a number of others on various topics um, in the episode description. Fred, thanks a lot. Thank you for having me. That was International Marxist Radio. Thanks for joining us. Tune in again same time next week for more Marxist news, theory, and analysis. And if you've been inspired by what you've heard today, get in touch via our website, marxist.com, and find out more about how you can join the international Marxist tendency and fight for revolution where you are.